Okay. <laughs> so two of you at the same time are teasing me for starting only five minutes late tonight. <laughs> Why are we starting so early tonight? Honestly, I oughta. It's fun. No, we're good. We're good. I think we're starting. We're starting on time tonight because tonight everybody in my family is asleep already. That's normally my problem. Um, so, uh, so yeah, that's uh, that's that's normally the reason that I'm uh, uh, that I'm that I'm running late is you when I'm running late uh, at this time of night. It's usually because I'm still tucking in folks uh, uh, who sometimes are not swift to be tucked in. Uh, but of course, the tucking in is obviously a uh, cornerstone paternal duty. So I always do that. All right. Well, welcome, welcome to the penultimate session of. Uh, the Mythgard Academy uh, 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 class on the Return of the Shadow. It's our 16th class on the Return of the Shadow, and I say with great confidence, our penultimate class. After this, we're going to get down into Moria. We'll do the we'll do the final. You know, we'll finish. Uh, you know, we're going to see how much we can do of the the penultimate chapter tonight, and we'll do the rest of that plus uh, uh, plus the rest of it next time. Um, yeah, sorry I couldn't add another session, Yana, but uh, but yeah, I'm out of time because I'm I'm going to have to miss almost certainly two weeks in a row after this. So it's it's a it's it's it falls at a perfect time. We'll come back and we'll start Boethius after I get back. So that'll that'll all work out. I think a, a, a great deal better. Um, Besides, I can't help but think that 17 weeks is really plenty uh, for the Return of the Shadow class. Um, <clears throat> though, it's been wonderful fun. So, let's, uh, let's, let's, let's carry on. Let's move forward, because tonight is a super exciting night, right? We're still sort of in Phase 3, um, but we're finally going to move forward, right? Move forward past, that, past the midpoint of the story in Rivendell, right? And we're going to start on the second half here. Um... Uh, and uh, do I think the treason of Isengard will be equally long? Uh, you know, roughly, yeah, <laughs> probably. <laughs> well, given given that the four different versions of the Errantry poem uh, are in the treason of Isengard, and I'm gonna need at least one or two classes just for that. Yeah, yeah, the treason of Isengard is gonna take a while too, but that's okay. Um, so uh, <laughs> Tom Hillman says, "You mean we're not going to go back to the beginning and start over again?" Yeah, not exactly, but uh, I mean probably. But um, uh, anyway, yeah. So no, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna plow ahead, but it's gonna be awesome. Um, and uh, yeah, so um, yeah, I'm really excited to start the Treason of Isengard. I have spent of the three volumes of the history of the Lord of the Rings, I have spent most time. Uh, in the Return of the Shadow before, so I'm even less familiar uh, with the Treason of Isengard uh, and the War of the Ring, uh, except for you know sort of bits here and there that I've that I've studied more carefully. Uh, so I'm 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 super excited about that. I've been I've been holding myself off uh, until we get there. So I'm I'm uh, I'm really excited uh, to kind of dig in. But anyway, tonight, as I said, is super exciting. Because we're moving forward at last, right? Past that sticking point in Rivendell, beyond which we've never gone, other than plot conjections and general outlines and things, and we see him actually moving the story forward and, of course, begin to, to get, you know, the stuff that we recognize. We get the Council of Elrond, we get the, uh, the Ringo South, uh, the 
being caught in the snow of Karathras and the decision, at least so far, uh, to go to Moria, as well as several other things that creep up and some questions that get explained. So without further ado, oh, okay, now hang on, one piece of further ado. Uh, one piece of further ado is uh, the, 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 I don't want to forget, Mythmoot, I'm going to keep announcing it because we're getting closer now. The, the registration deadline on Mythmoot uh, is going to be the, the, uh, the first week of, of May. So we've only got a few weeks left uh, to register. Uh, and it is going to be so awesome. I want to make sure that nobody, uh, uh, nobody misses out on that. So uh, please do remember to register for Mythmoot because it's going to be great. Uh, ain't no party like a nerd party, says Karita. Too true, Karita. Too true. All right, with that, let's move on and dig into things. So, of course, you rec- will recognize my uh, my title um, from uh, uh, from The Hobbit, those tooks that have gone off into the blue on mad adventures uh, under Gandalf's encouragement. And it feels like all this, you know, now finally the story is going out uh, off into the blue uh, on a mad adventure, carrying on past Rivendell, uh, which is uh, which is kind of amazing. Um, so let's. Um, uh, uh, let's move. Oh, Skipping ahead. Okay, here we go. So, um, what's going on with Balin? Again, remember we got some Balin story earlier on, right? There was there was already the idea of Balin going to start a new colony, and then nothing was heard from them, right? But you recall there was like this the sort of mountains vaguely off to the south where that was going to happen, because. Remember, the Mines of Moria weren't a thing. There's a reference to them, of course, in The Hobbit. It talks about the Mines of Moria. We know the battle happened there. But they don't seem to be the ancestral home of the dwarves. There's no hint of their being the ancestral home of the dwarves. Um, they're certain, their importance is certainly secondary to Erebor, right? Um, so, I mean, Erebor is the ancestral home of the dwarves, you know, of, of Thorin's family. And, uh, uh, and the mines of Moria is, is just a place where they fought with the goblins, presumably over whatever they were mining in the mine, right? Um, so, uh, anyway, but now we, uh, we shift things. So now the, that old idea of the mines of Moria and the newer, but now relatively, comparatively old idea of Balin going off to found a doomed colony uh, are now finally being combined. Balin took to traveling again, he answered. It's glowing, of course. You may have heard that he visited Bilbo and Hobbiton many years ago. Well, not very long after that, he went away for two or three years. Then he returned to the mountain with a great number of dwarves that he discovered wandering masterless in the south and east. He wanted Dayan to go back to Moria, or at least to allow him to found a colony there and reopen the great mines. As you probably know, Moria was the ancestral home of the dwarves of the race of Durin, and the forefathers of Thorin and Dayan dwelt there until they were driven by the goblin invasions far into the north. Now, Balin reported that Moria was again wholly deserted, since the great defeat of the goblins, but the mines were still rich, especially in silver. Dayan was not willing to leave the mountain and the tomb of Thorin, but he allowed Balin to go and he took with him many of the folk of the mountain, as well as his own following. And Ori and Owen went with him. Okay, so this idea has now taken root, right? The, uh, the, the, it's, it's, it's very interesting to me, right, the, that this shift, um, shifting Balin to Moria, 
right, um, has coincided with this decision that Tolkien has now made that the ancestral home of the House of Durin should be not Erebor but Moria, right? So he's 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 sort of taken as is not unknown, right? He's taken this thing which was a passing reference, kind of off the cuff, um, in. Uh, 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 in the Hobbit, and he's 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 made it into he's decided to make it into a really a really huge thing, right? So now the Lonely Mountain, um, which you'll recall in 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 those plot projections that happened at the end of Phase One when we got to Rivendell the first time, it sounded like we were still going to have an Eroborocentric plot, right? It was still going to be paralleling the, the movement from the Hobbit, and that Mordor was going to be you know like it's somewhere in the Greater Erebor region. Uh, and it seems that now that we've shifted, and we saw that shift happen fairly early, that shift happened in phase two, right? Um, the shift of Mordor further south down to the center of Middle-earth, wherever exactly that is. Um, uh, anyway, the, the shift away from Erebor has, suggest, has, has, has moved the story. And when we get back to Rivendell, we find uh, that sort of the history of the dwarves has shifted as well. You'll notice also um, that... Um, uh, and Yana, I don't think it's a good question. Yana asks, did Tolkien edit The Hobbit at all later on in, in later versions of The Hobbit uh, to change the significance of Moria? I don't recall that he did. I think the Moria stuff was there in the first draft, if I recall correctly. Um, because, again, what's said in chapter one is, is, is relatively vague. I mean, it's, it just sounds like it was a mine where there was a war with the goblins. And it's clearly in the Misty Mountains. Um, but other than that, there's there's really nothing clearly said about it, uh, but nothing that contradicts what goes on later on either. Um, so, so yeah, I, I I don't I don't I I don't I don't recall any changes that he made about that. Um, but of course, we can see one thing that he does change later on in Hobbit editions, right? And that is the reference to Mithril uh, and the fact that, uh, that that Bilbo's coat is made out of Mithril because it's perfectly clear Mithril is not a thing yet, right? He has not invented Mithril. Uh, it's just silver, like normal silver in presumably large quantities that they find in Moria. And that's good, right? That's handy. Um, but it's nothing like... So that that sort of extra significance of Moria silver, right? Uh, you know, and, and therefore the significance that Khazad Dûm has as the one place in Middle Earth where Mithril can be found um, has not emerged yet. So we're all, we're we, you know we're we're clearly in this sort of transitional moment. Mithril, by the way, gets added, if I recall correctly, to the third edition of The Hobbit, the, the 1964 or is it 66 edition of The Hobbit. Um, in the first edition, silver steel. His his uh, his elf mail is of silver steel, um, but uh, yeah, yeah, um, exactly, exactly. Um, so he, so he he does edit that in. He does make the he does make the coat of Mithril, which means, by the way, rem- so remember we've already been talking about Bilbo's armor, um, and Bilbo's armor is therefore not yet quite as special. So when he hands it on to Frodo, it's not quite yet as special as it would later on become, right? Uh, and the significance of that gift is not, therefore, necessarily as profound as the significance of it would eventually uh, come to be. Um, and, uh, yeah, Stephen, I don't know. You know, Stephen is saying, uh, um, you know, he can understand like the, the, the concept of the growth of Mithril and sort of making Moria uh, really special, but why normal silver rather than gold? Stephen, I, 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 I don't know why silver. Um, uh, 
uh, particularly. Um, I don't, I, I can't see any obvious sort of rationale for it, you know, so I don't really know. Um, but it certainly is an interesting question. Um, yeah, Yana, you're right. His armor is not yet worth the value of the Shire, right? It would have made a lovely exhibit in the Matham House, but uh, it's not. there's not yet any kind of absurd irony to that, as uh, Gandalf is going to eventually go on to say. Um, Jennifer, I don't know the answer to that question. Jennifer is asking, does the word Mithril show up in Tolkien's languages before it appears here? My in- my impulse would be no, but that's just a guess based on uh, based on. The, I mean, the the thing, it would be pretty unusual for the for the name to precede the thing by quite so much. But uh, um, but I I don't know uh, for sure. Um, anyway, okay. So the other fascinating element here. Right, is that this business about the the wandering dwarves that Balin finds? Right, the idea that Balin doesn't just take off with him, uh, up, you know, under peaceable and uh, fully approved circumstances, a portion of the dwarves of Erebor, um, but that he he finds he discovers and gathers together these masterless wandering dwarves in the south and east. Um, and I don't know what to make of that exactly. I mean, on the one hand, it establishes Balin in a somewhat different position, right? I mean, his setting up uh, uh, his, you know, his his kingdom in Moria was always um, sort of subordinate to Dan, right? It was always just a colony of the Lonely Mountain, right? With him sort of presumably still owing fealty uh, to Dan himself. One consequence it seems to me, of him having... Because you'll notice how later on in this paragraph it refers to Balin's own following, right? You know, he took many of the folk of the mountain as well as his own following, right? So in that sense, Balin sort of becomes his own house, right? Establishes his own much more independent kingdom than he would have been establishing um, in, uh, you know, in the published, published Fellowship of the Ring. So... Maybe that's the effect. Maybe that's kind of... I mean, I'm I'm kind of not sure what to make of it. Um, But that's so... You know, I always ask myself, well, what does it do, right? What what is the consequence? Uh, I I might not see the point of this choice, or uh, uh, I might not be sure of of all the implications, but, you know, what is the immediate effect? What is it... What what is it connected with? And the one thing we see it connected with here is Balin's following, right? This idea of Balin being a great lord, him coming not just being a subset of the house of uh, of Durin, because that would seem to set up rival kings, right, in the house of Durin, and lead you at least to to wonder whether or not we, you know, if. Moria were to flourish under Balin, would be would would we be heading down the road for like civil war between Erebor and and Khazad Dûm to decide who was you know really the boss of the House of Durin? Um, perhaps it's to you know to alleviate any of that kind of tension that he he sort of has uh, Balin set up on his own or something. I don't I don't I don't really know. Um, Tony, are they petty dwarves? Good question. No. Definitely not, and I say definitely not because they've they're not invented yet. Um, the petty dwarves um, are a late concept, and the, nowhere have has that come in yet. There's just like dwarves and dwarves. Uh, uh, you know, there's there's no there's no uh, there's no sub 
race or subspecies of dwarves. They're different houses of dwarves, right? Um, but there's no, um, um, there's no, yeah. And and remember, Karita Meme is uh, far from being a petty dwarf. <clears throat> he is, you know, originally he's like Durin, right? I mean, he is the father, you know, the, he's Meme the fatherless, um, first of all the dwarves, um, originally in the old stories. Uh, that's already begun to change. We don't see him in quite that same position, and certainly the uh, uh, the significance of Durin is 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 is, is obviously increasing. Um, but yeah, there's certainly no no concept of petty dwarves yet. We'll get to that later on, but it hasn't happened yet, so definitely not. Um, yeah, yeah, good. Um, Kate, yeah, Kate's right. Kate Neville says uh, Mithril has an opposite antecedent uh, in the black armor of Aeol, which is described as being lighter and stronger than dwarvish steel. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we we so we do have a precedent for sort of special ore and special metals and things like that, uh, uh, especially which are which are sort of down to or or connected with the superlative uh, uh, craftsmanship of of you know very special craftsmen. Um, but yeah, it's it's um, we don't have uh, we don't have uh, Mithril yet, but we do have that kind of precedent. Um, yeah. Okay. Anyway, so all right, so we get some developments in the Dwarvish Kingdom, uh, which is interesting, and, and we get Ori and Owen going off with Balin. So so that's uh, that's cool. Let's let's uh, let's carry on here, and we're still in in many meetings, right? So we got to now Frodo meeting Bilbo, which we never got to before, right? We finally got over the hump of his uh, conversation with Glowin there. Um, so, okay, Bilbo says, I shall have to get that fellow Peregrine to help me. And Elrond replies that he will have Ethelion found. Uh, in chapter 11 of the third phase, Glorfindel calls Trotter Dufinion. Messengers were sent to find Bilbo's friend. It was said that he had been in the kitchens, for his help was as much esteemed by the cooks as by the poets. Can I just say, I'm really sorry we lost that line. I really am. I, I, I wish, I so wish that Strider had been off helping the cooks, right, when... <laughs> <laughs> when Bilbo uh, wants help with his poem, uh, just the idea of Aragorn out in the back, like sampling the broth and being like, "No, no, no, it needs a little tarragon, right?" Uh, it would that would just be awesome. But um, anyway, cool. Oh, good, excellent. Thank you, Matthew. Matthew is looking it up for me, um, uh, uh, saying that he does not see any changes in the Hobbit in regards to Moria. My recollection was good. Good, excellent, Matthew. I'm glad. Uh, to have my my recollections confirmed, um, <laughs> wearing a hairnet, James. Exactly. I thought the whole the whole image with Aragorn, right? It would be it would be absolutely fantastic. Um, yeah, <laughs> Karina says she likes it so much she's going to just assume it's still true, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and and what's more, Karita is demanding fan art of Aragorn in an apron. Uh, that this seems to me a perfectly just request. Uh, absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. No, this is clearly this is clearly uh, this is clearly a thing. But again, it's very hobbity, right? Uh, you know that the, there's something that is gained from having the Trotter Strider figure be a hobbit, right? And and there's one. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, though, again, what a lovely encapsulation of the character of, of, of Trotter, right? Of Peregrine that, um, 
he is as much esteemed by the cooks as by the poets, right? I mean, you know, Sam Gamgee can only hope that someday the same is said of him. Uh, but but again, that idea, um, that idea of the sort of the domestic hobbit sphere, right? The, you know, the quiet domestic, slightly hedonistic hobbit sphere with the, um, uh, you know, the 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 more sort of elevated. Uh, elvish sort of art of poetry, right? Uh, and bringing those two things together. It's very Trotter, right? And of course, it will be very Sam. Uh, and it's kind of interesting to me how this almost sort of makes uh, I, I, that combination, right, of cooks and poets inevitably makes me think of Sam. And so thinking of, of Sam as sort of Peregrine's kind of heir in that, I think is uh, is 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 really kind of awesome. Um, but you'll remember, of course, <clears throat> this is the same kind of reveal that we're that we get uh, in uh, uh, in the Fellowship of the Ring, right? So uh, Frodo, I almost called him Bingo. Frodo still only knows Trotter by the name of Trotter, right? Doesn't know that his name is Peregrine. So when Bilbo says, "I have to, I have to get that fellow Peregrine to help me," uh, Frodo doesn't know that he's talking about Trotter yet, right? Okay. It had been said in the earlier parts of the chapter that Frodo could not see Trotter at the feast, and his absence survived into the Fellowship of the Ring, but with a very different reason for it. I doubt it, Carita, right? Aragorn was totally not at the feast because he was back in the kitchen helping the chefs. Whatever Bilbo may have had to say of himself is not reported in the original story. The entire passage in which Bilbo tells of his journey to Dale, of his life in Rivendell, and his interest in the Ring, and the distressing incident when he asks to see it, is absent. And that's interesting to me. So look at the things. So what are Tolkien's first impulses when he gets Frodo and Bilbo together, right? Um, And kind of comparing and contrasting those two things. That is, the list of stuff that Tolkien went for right away, right? When, When writing the reunion scene, which is obviously an important thing within the context of the story. Um, what did he, what did he reach for immediately and what did he go in and add in later? What, what are the elements that, upon revisions, he's going to eventually feel are, are, are missing in this scene, right? Well, so the two things that he goes for are the, the reveal with Trotter, right? So, in other words, Bilbo is the one, he's kind of the bridge, right? Uh, as, the reve- as the instrument of revealing the true identity of Trotter... Um, right, kind of, kind of pulling back the, the curtain there from ranger or ranger esque hobbit to, and making the connection to that, you know, that he was a hobbit of the Shire, and of course Frodo makes the connection as soon as he sees him and realizes that Trotter is Peregrine, as we'll see, I think, on the next slide. But, um, uh, but again, it's it's interesting to me that Bilbo is the is sort of the transition point, right? It's it's uh, it's Bilbo that, that that sort of serves to connect those dots, which seems perfectly fitting, right? Peregrine uh, and Bilbo seem actually to sort of correspond to each other in some kind of interesting ways, I think. Uh, so that's so, so that's one thing he does: the reveal of Trotter and the connection with Bilbo. And the other thing is small talk, right? Sharing news about the Shire. Um, It's interesting that he doesn't, you know, as Christopher points out here, he doesn't talk about his journey, right? We don't get that. Um, We don't get him talking about Rivendell. We don't get anything about the ring. Now, that last thing is, to me, the least surprising of all of those absences in this scene. Mostly because you'll remember how well, not vague, I was about to say vague, but that's not quite right. Um, 
it's uh, um, how uncertain Tolkien is about Bilbo's relationship with the ring. Remember, it's one of the things he was going back and changing, um, not only when he did the third, uh, ver- you know, started the third phase, but when he paused, right, right when they got to Rivendell, and he paused and went back into some of those radical revisions that he was suggesting for the for the early version. You'll remember uh, one of the major threads of those things that he was rethinking at the beginning was the fact that Bilbo was going to be less and less less affected by the ring and less aware, less well-informed of the actual nature of the ring and its consequences. So the fact that he doesn't bring up the ring or show that he's been affected by the ring doesn't surprise me in the least bit, um, because Tolkien clearly still has a ways to go to decide exactly what Bilbo's position in his relationship with the whole um, uh, the nature of the ring and the um, uh, the, the, the sort of handing off the ring to Frodo. He's not sorted that out yet, so that's not surprising. Um, but uh, but it is a little bit surprising to me that he doesn't give Bilbo any more story, right? That we don't hear from Bilbo about what has he been doing. Has he been on any adventures, right? Uh, and if so, what? Um, no, we just get, they just kind of shoot the breeze, right? They, 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 there's this like resumption of normal, you know, hobbit interaction. Um, and, uh, um, uh, you know, that's um, interesting, to me, you know, that, that that's the level on which Frodo and Bilbo connect. I, I, I don't, I don't think that's, uh, I mean, I, I, I hope it doesn't sound like I'm just trying to diss that particular choice. I find that choice fascinating, you know, thinking especially about the significance that the Shire acquired to Frodo, right. As he was leaving it. Um, and, uh, to think, to, to, to think that he, he basically sort of I don't know, it's like he immediately re-anchors himself in Shire affairs, and Bilbo, too, seeks to reconnect in that same way. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Dufinian, I, I, I believe, Carita, is how that is supposed to be pronounced. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, um... Yeah, well, Karita, we'll have to wait and see how that comes in and develops uh, to talk about it much more. But the inclusion of the distressing incident, you know, uh, Karita's asking what effect did the inclusion of the distressing of, uh, incident have uh, in the finished work? It, many, but one of the simplest and clearest is simply to show the power of the ring, right? Um, and also Bilbo's state of awareness about you know both you know his 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 imperfect awareness um right as he kind of lets himself in for it right by asking to see the ring again in the first place but afterwards his recognition and his telling Frodo to put it away and his deliberate turning away uh of the conversation and sort of diffusing of that moment um so I get one of the things we see is how Bilbo has been affected and how he's coping right um that's one of the consequences of of the distressing incident. Um, but again, since Tolkien hasn't totally made up his mind about either one of those things, it's not at all to me surprising that uh, uh, that we don't get it. Um, yeah, Jennifer says it. Uh, it seems like Tolkien hasn't found a purpose for Bilbo beyond the initial disappearance, uh, passing on the ring, and revealing Trotter's identity. Yeah, you know, Jennifer, I wonder if uh, if maybe that played any part in that 
crazy idea that Tolkien had of going back and making Bilbo the hero again. Um, you know, remember that it, like flirtation with let's just axe Frodo <laughs> and make the whole story about Bilbo again. Um, and uh, you know, Jennifer, I can't help but wonder. You know, is he having Bilbo remorse? Right? Is he missing Bilbo <laughs> as much as Frodo did? Uh, and when he almost gets to him again, he's like, "Nah, no, I can't just shove Bilbo off the side like this again." Um, you know, I don't. Uh, uh, I don't. Uh, I don't. Again. Who knows, right? I don't have any idea, but it, it is kind of interesting, isn't it? That we we do see exactly as you say. There there is not much of a role for Bilbo. Indeed, that's going to come up explicitly, right, in the council, uh, in that very first draft of the council. Bilbo volunteering to become the hero again, and them saying, "Nope, no, you're totally not becoming the hero." Right, that time has passed. Um, and, you know, basically there isn't any role for you except perhaps as a recorder, right? Maybe you're supposed to write the book still. So go ahead and finish your book. If, if you have a role, it's going to be that one. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, it's we, we get, Jennifer, to an overt acknowledgement of that fact, right? Um, but it does seem like, we're, you know, it, it's, uh, it's something that's just kind of presenting itself in a sense here. Okay. Here comes Trotter. They were so deep in the doings of the Shire that they did not notice the arrival of another hobbit. For several minutes he stood by them, looking at them with a smile. Suddenly they looked up. "'Ah, there you are, Peregrine,' said Bilbo. "'Trotter,' said Frodo. "'Both right,' laughed Trotter. "'Well, that is tiresome of Gandalf,' exclaimed Frodo. "'I knew you reminded me of someone, and he laughed at me. "'Of course you remind me of yourself, and of Falco, and of all the Tooks.' You you came once to Buckland when I was very small, but I never but I never quite forgot it, because you talked to old Rory about lands outside the Shire, and about Bilbo, who you were not allowed to see. I wondered what became of you, but I was puzzled by your shoes. Why do you wear them? I shall not tell you the reason now, said Trotter quietly. Oh boy, Frodo's really laid an egg socially there. Uh, uh, no, Frodo, don't ask that yet, said Bilbo, looking rather unhappy. Come on, Perry, I want your help. This song of mine has got to be finished this evening. At this point, while in the middle of writing the second text, my father rode across it, Trotter had better not be a hobbit, but a ranger, remainder of Western men as originally planned. I love that, as originally planned. Baloney, it was originally planned. As Christopher Tolkien very gently points out, there is no sense in which you could say that that was the original plan for Trotter. But but I love how, to Tolkien after the fact, it seems like that was the original plan all the way along. But there's really no... Again, as we can see from our own, you know, reading so far, it's clearly an indefensible concept. Um... Yes, Stephen, he does know why Trotter was wearing shoes at this point. I don't think he did before. I, I, I mean, I don't think there's any evidence um, that he had a clear idea of why Trotter was wearing shoes uh, in the previous versions. But now, I, yeah, we're going to get a reference to it in just a little bit. So, uh, so, so, yeah, I think he does. I, I think he does know now. Um, and, um, yeah, Yana, I, I the... the the lines from Trotter here, right? Well, you know, the both right and him, his, his, uh, laughing at them and everything. Um, it, it is very Hobbit like, right. Uh, and, uh, his, uh, standing there smiling down at them, you know, sort of enjoying the moment. Uh, it, it, it does this, this fits really well with him being a Hobbit. Um, you know, as I say, like, I, I, I'm not a fan of the name Trotter, but 
the character I really like, the concept I really like, the wild hobbit I really like. And, um, you know, this, this having, um, having an even more Tookish version of Bilbo, right. You know, having this sort of adventuring hobbit mentor around, um, it's, it's neat. I mean, I love the concept of Trotter. I, you know, Aragorn's cool too, but, uh, but I really, I, I really like this. And yes, Carson, um, it is really interesting that his nickname is Perry, right? Um, and not Pippin. And remember, I was cautioning last time, uh, a, a few of you, when Peregrine came up, were, were calling him Pippin for short. He's not Pippin, right? Because even his nickname isn't Pippin. It's not only that he's not that character, uh, but uh, it's not even his nickname, right? You can tell. He's not a Pippin. He wouldn't call him Pippin, right? He calls him Perry. Naturally, he calls him Perry. Of course he does. Um, uh, exactly, Karita. Pippin is a much cuter name. You're not going to call your 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 peer cousin Pippin right now. No, no. Pippin is the nickname for the, you know, the 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 young kid in the group. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and Sarah, no, I don't. There's no evidence of any wild hobbits in the published Lord of the Rings. Again, we get those reference to the fact that there are some that are no better than tramps, right? Um, uh, but but no, n- nothing, nothing like Trotter. Trotter is going to eventually disappear almost entirely um, without a trace. So, which is kind of sad. But um, um, yeah, yeah. And Stephanie, I agree. Stephanie, I love this idea of him talking of lands outside the Shire and creating wonderment in the two-year-old Frodo, which is how old, as Christopher points out, how old Frodo was at the time. Yes, he was quite young. So we're talking about some of very young Frodo's very first memories of life, right, are hearing uh, uh, his cousin Peregrine talking to old Rory and hearing these stories, you know, so we had talk about formative experiences, right? Uh, and that's really neat. Um, and, and it, it brings me back to the use of the word encouraged that I talked about before, right? How Bilbo doesn't corrupt his, his, you know, nephews and cousins and he, you know, he doesn't, um, inspire them, right? He doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't give them ideas. He encourages them as if they themselves have an adventurous temperament, which he merely, uh, you know, encourages them not to curtail, right? But it's not that he's creating it or inspiring it. Um, and I think we can see that, you know, this, this is the first place where we can see that most clearly in Frodo, right? That he, he, he had that inclination from the beginning, um, in part, thanks to Peregrine, right? Or, you know, Peregrine was the occasion of it, we're told. Um, but this ancient link, right? This childhood link uh, to Peregrine and to, to Peregrine as symbol and spokesman of the life of adventure that struck this chord in the toddler Frodo, right? Um, which which chord was then, you know, encouraged by Bilbo later on in his life. Um, I think it's... Uh, um, Really interesting. Um, why wasn't he allowed to see Bilbo? We'll get to that. We'll get. We'll, we'll, I, I think we'll. I think. I, I, I think I have that passage in here too. We'll. We'll come to the history of Trotter a little bit more. Um, but. Um, okay. So. 
Oh, in the shoes, right? Of course, he goes there right away, which is natural on the one hand, uh, because Frodo, now knowing who he is, feels a little bit more comfortable, right? So asks the question, which has obviously been on his mind for for a long time, right? For many days. Why do you wear wooden shoes? And and they're like, let's not talk about that, right? Because it turns out to be a grim story. Um. I know, Creed says, who knew that shoes were such a social landmine, right? I, 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 I hear you. I mean, it's, it's, I'm kind of sympathetic to, to Frodo, you know, that, that, you know, he wouldn't suspect that he was uh, blowing it so completely. But, you know, man, um, uh, let's keep going. When my father wrote this passage, he evidently had in mind, oh, this is the, uh, the song, right? So, so, uh, uh. Bilbo sings his song, um, which we don't get, right? That, that, that he doesn't, Frodo's asleep, right? And we don't get the song. But anyway, okay. When my father wrote this passage, he evidently had in mind, at least, at least as one possibility, a comic song received with the ringing laughter that wakened Frodo. For at the top of the page, he wrote, troll song. Of course he did. A passing idea before it was given far more, far more, appositively, appositively, uh, aptly, I would say, to Sam in the Troll Shaws. But he also wrote, Let Bilbo sing Tenuviel, and the word messenger? This is a reference to the poem Errantry, published in the Oxford Magazine, 9 November 1933, and with many further changes in The Adventures of Tom Bombadil. Bilbo's song, Arendel Was a Mariner, derived, in a sense, from Errantry, and the earliest text of it still begins... There was a merry messenger, a passenger, a mariner. He built a boat and gilded her, and silver oars he fashioned her. Much more on that in the Treason of Isengard class, where we get the full text. That's what I was referring to earlier on, the full text of all four versions of this poem. And we will study the fascinating path, a creative path, from the errantry poem of 1933 to Arendel was a mariner who tarried in Arvernian. He built a ship of timber felled in Nimbrathel to journey in. Very, very different and yet directly related and not as different as it seems. Really awesome, fascinating stuff for the Treason of Isengard class. Um, the point is two things. One, <laughs> Tolkien is so desperate to include the troll song. You see, you see how much Tolkien loved that poem, right? I mean, it is very clear that the troll song is just one of his favorite poems that he ever wrote, right? Um, this is the second time now he's tried to shoehorn it in. The second occasions where he's like, okay, I need a, I, I want a comical song. <gasps> troll song! Tro- no, no, okay. No troll song yet. Eventually, he's going to find somewhere to shoehorn it in even more forcibly, right? Because he's already passed that scene twice and felt no inclination to add a comic song, right? But by golly, we're going to add a, a, a comic song in there later on. Um, but anyway, okay, so so he, he flirts with the idea of the troll songs. Um, he considers the idea at what seems to me the opposite end of the spectrum uh, to let Bilbo sing Tenuvio, which would seem to me to suggest that he's thinking of, of shifting it away from Trotter uh, before Weathertop, which I'm devoutly glad he didn't do, right? Going back and retroactively changing the great moments, right? The moment when the floodgates open and the Silmarillion comes in. Um, by the way, I uh, gave a, a, a 
plenary address at the University of Tolkien, or the University of Tolkien, the University of Vermont Tolkien Conference uh, la- this past weekend in Burlington, uh, and that's what I spoke on actually. I sp- my my talk was derived from our Mythgard Academy class here. Um, uh, my 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 talk was called the turning point in his career, and I kind of it was the first time I ever kind of really put it together. I've been sort of talking about it here and there, but I really kind of put together you know my evidence and presented my case for. Um, you know, the, 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 the firewall with the Hobbit and the, the development of the Silmarillion and, and, you know, that moment uh, being the moment when, uh, uh, when, when the doors opened. So it was, it was, it was, it was really fun. And I owe it all to you guys. Uh, but anyway, so anyway, I'm glad I didn't muck that up, right, by, <laughs> by lifting the Tenuvial poem and, and, uh, uh, and putting it here. Um, and so Messenger, this is the first glimpse He's thinking of putting Errantry here, but notice he's not thinking of putting Arendel was a mariner there. Don't don't be confused by that. Um, if he's putting in messenger, that almost certainly means that it's one of the early and comical versions. Uh, the, uh, the 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 poem Errantry is designed to be funny. It's a gag. Uh, it's actually a gag. It's not only a poem which is meant to be amusing but it's a joke that's performed at the expense of the audience. So um, uh, the idea of having Bilbo doing that, right, um, is really interesting. So two of his three ideas are of Bilbo just reciting a funny, nonsensical poem, right? Relatively nonsensical. Um, and that the, the ringing laughter that greets Bilbo's song is what wakes Frodo up. It's just kind of fascinating to me that that's his first impulse. His first impulse is to... I mean, I understand why Frodo sings a comical song on a tabletop in the common room of the Prancing Pony, right? That makes sense. Whether it be the Man in the Moon poem or the, or the Troll song, it makes sense that he's going to sing a witty, funny song in that moment. Um, the fact that Bilbo, in the Hall of Fire, in front of Elrond and all of the elves of Rivendell, is going to sing a, either that same song, in the case of the Troll song, or a song very like it, is um, really interesting, right? Really interesting. Um, And I think there's one thing that kind of connects these three things. By the way, uh, you're you're right. Um, uh, Jennifer says, uh, Tenuvio might be an even more daring song to sing in Elrond's house than a song about Eorendil. Uh, perhaps in some ways, um, but that does seem to me the um, um, the thread, right? Um, if there is one thing that clearly connects these three singings together, right, by Bilbo, these three theoretical singings, it's cheekiness. Uh, you know, for him to get up and be like, and now I have a song for you, and to do errantry and play the errantry gag on them, or whether he's going to do the troll song, right? Uh, uh, presumably with the with the butt kicking actions included, right? Um, or to have him take upon himself to sing the song of Tenuvio in the House of Elrond. Um, any of those things is 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 kind of a cheeky action, right? So sh- showing Bilbo's I'm tempted to say irreverent, which is not quite right, um, but certainly non-solemn relationship with the elves of Rivendell. And I totally agree, Karita, elves are always laughing, right? So you're right that it's it's not like it would be inappropriate, like the elves would be shocked and stunned and, you know, 
imagining these elves sitting around with sort of shocked, you know, Victorian expressions or something like that. Obviously, that's not how the elves are, and they wouldn't have that reaction. But still, I mean, it's it's still kind of cheeky to 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 stand up and sing a song like that here. I mean, maybe out, you know, by the river, you know, when you're baking bannocks in the open, you might sing a song like that. But in the Hall of Fire, really? I mean, okay. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, um, so I think that it's it's. To, again, to me, what it seems to to tell us about, and if there's the one thing we can draw from this, it seems to me, it's about Bilbo's character, right? And the way that Tolkien is conceiving of Bilbo's character and Bilbo's relationship with the elves of Rivendell. And come to think of it, it's uh, the kind of relationship that Bilbo has had with the elves of Rivendell since day one, right? Uh, ever since he was amused at their ridiculous song, at the tra la la song that they sang, think about the exchange he has from his bedroom window, right? When they wake him up with their ridiculous lullaby, which is obviously calculated to wake him up. Um, uh, you know, your, your, your lullaby would waken a drunken goblin, and yet I thank you, right? That's, this is, this is, uh, you know, and your snores would waken a stone dragon, yet we thank you, right? It's, that, that's the kind of relationship that he has with the elves, and I think we can, we can continue to see that. Um, okay, all right. So now we're thinking through the council, right? What are we going to do? Ring offered to Elrond. He refuses. It is a peril to all possessors, more to myself than all others. It is the fate that the hob- it is fate that the hobbits should rid the world of it. What will then become of the other rings? They will lose their power, but we must sacrifice that power in order to destroy the Lord. As long as anyone in the world holds the ruling ring, there is a chance for him to get it back again. Two things can be done. We can send it west, or we can destroy it. If we had sent it west long ago, that would have been well enough. But now the power of the Lord has grown too great, and he is fully awake. It would be too perilous, and his war would come over the Shire and destroy the Havens. In the margin written, Radagast. They decide that the ring must be taken to the fiery mountain. How? It can hardly be reached except by passing over the borders of the land of Mordor. No, it would kill... Bilbo? No, it would kill me now. My years are stretched and I will live some time yet, but I have no longer strength for the ring. Frodo volunteers to go. Okay, so now notice. This is... We've seen this kind of thing before, right? This is Tolkien writing a sketch, an outline sketch, but it's one of those outlines that's getting away from him right away, right? And we see him jotting down rapid dialogue, or at least the sort of the seed of dialogue, um, the template of a dialogue, um, as these lines are kind of occurring to him, right? And so that's why it, it sort of begins and ends in outline with all of this direct quotation kind of... Uh, merged in. Um, okay, so um, what else do we say? First of all, Radagast. This is the second time the name Radagast has been penciled into the margin when he's thinking about what should happen, an adventure that should happen, or who should do something. Or right, um, he remembers Radagast. Most of the other things that have been alluded to in passing in The Hobbit have been made into something, right? Like the Mines of Moria, for instance, right? The Mines of Moria receive almost as much attention, just about as much attention in The Hobbit as Radagast does. I mean, the two of them, um, you know, uh, 
Gandalf's colleague and that place where dwarves once fought a battle are both kind of on the same level in The Hobbit. Um, one of them, of course, is going to become a central focal point of a major section of the plot of The Lord of the Rings, and one of them is going to end up still with a bit part. But you can see that he's thinking about it, right? When he's he's looking for... Um, somebody to play a role he seems to sort of reach for, or almost he seems to threaten to reach for Radagast right, but he never totally uh, totally does it um, yeah, good Yana says, even the whole, the reference to a took bearing uh, 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 getting a fairy wife was kind of covered yeah, I mean, he's really gone through and um Developed a lot, you know, very, very many, most really of the ideas and things touched on in the in the Hobbit. But uh, poor Radagast, yeah, always a bridesmaid, Carita. You're totally right. Um, and Tony's wondering if he's thinking of uh, giving him the Saruman role. Um, it's a great question, Tony. I hadn't thought of that, but of course it may be so. His war would come over the Shire and destroy the Havens, Radagast, right? Well, it could be, of course, Radagast working to thwart him or coming to warn them or something like that. But, of course, it's also possible that it's going to turn out that Radagast is going to be his agent, you know, to overcome the Shire and destroy the Havens. Conceivable, right? I guess when we think about it that way, maybe Radagast's exclusion is not such bad news for him after all. At least we can still imagine that he didn't fail, since we know so little about him. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Elrond's proclamation, it is fate that the hobbits should rid the world of it, right? This much is clear to Elrond from the beginning, right? Um, it is clearly, you know, the, I'm thinking of, you know, Gildor saying what the purpose is, is not clear to me. The purpose is clear to Elrond, right? Uh, the power which is coordinating events, right? Providence has put the, the ring in the hands of the council, and that's really where it belongs. Um, Carson is wondering, could Tolkien be considering having Radagast at the council? That also seems to me very, very possible, uh, even likely, uh, as a possible interpretation of, uh, um, of that reference. Uh, certainly, it would be appropriate for him to be at the council. Um, I mean, it's not strange for him not to be there, given what Gandalf tells us about him in the published text, but it would not seem odd at all to invite him uh, if he were anywhere around. Um, yeah. Okay. Uh, what else was, uh, other things I was going to talk about there? I don't think so. Um, oh, one other uh, word here that really jumped out at me. Awake. Um, but now the power of the Lord is grown too great, and he is fully awake. Um that image, which is probably just a metaphor, um, is a really interesting one to me. I, you may have heard me joke at various points, but you know, because in the published text it talks about you know Sauron uh, growing in power and everything, and and I've kind of made jokes before about you know like a the this the 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 Sauron power up meter right and you see like the needle going you know over time until until it crosses the crucial threshold right and then he's fully powered up and ready to go again um you know obviously it's not that silly uh or that simple um but this language of sleep 
is really interesting to me. It's not a metaphor that Tolkien keeps any, I don't remember that metaphor being used anywhere in the published texts, um, for Sauron's period of dormancy after the, the, the taking of the ring, right? After the, the war of the last alliance, um, other than I just used it in calling it his period of dormancy. But that's the point, right? Uh, is that the idea of him not just being um, off somewhere and insufficiently regained in power in order to make his move yet, still gathering his strength of various kinds. I mean, that's it. I'm, I'm not saying that that's not a fine way to think about Sauron, but this idea of him being not yet fully awake, right? That he did go into some kind of spiritual coma, right? After the uh, uh, destruction and that he's he's slowly rousing over time. Again, not just kind of laying schemes which are not yet fully ripened, but that he's actually at least in some sense or partially asleep is... Uh, is uh, is interesting. Yeah, no, Stephanie is not the sleeper in the Tower of of Pearl. Uh, he's not that cool, but uh, uh, but yeah, yeah. Uh, it's kind of like rehab, uh, Patricia. You're totally right about that. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so yeah, good, good. Notice also the geography here. This is going to come up again later on. Um, Remember the geography, or rather, remember how vague the geography outside the Hobbit map is at this point. As Christopher points out, you know, uh, Tolkien, you can find Tolkien, I think it's in his letters, where he talks about maps and how important it is to have a map. And he says in one of his letters, I believe, that... um, he says you should always have a map. Uh, It's it's, it's much better to, to, to start with a map and then make your story comply with a map rather than doing it the other way around, rather than just writing the story and then trying to devise a map that's going to fit with everything that you described in the story. He says, always always start with a map. But he didn't actually do that. Uh, and we can see it's very clear that he didn't actually do that, right? We are, we do get the sketch of the map, and I'm, I'm not going to get to be talking about that tonight. Um, at the end of the penultimate chapter, we did get um, some some map work, but it's it's not this is not, he's worked out a map and then he's using it to tell his story, right? He's clearly not doing it in that way. And the geography, <clears throat> the geography to the south is exceptionally vague. The middle of the great land somewhere is where Mordor is. <clears throat> and the sense that I think we can hear pretty clearly in this first draft of the Council of Elrond, when they're deciding, right, when they're in Rivendell and they're deciding between going out to the... Um, to the havens on the ones that are going west and trying to take the, the ring uh, uh, to Toleresia on the one hand and going south to Mordor on the other hand, right? There's this, uh, it, it seems like those are almost equidistant, right? If anything, Mordor might be closer. Um, certainly nothing like the final proportions that we get in the actual Middle-earth map as it's going to be developed later on, um, where obviously the distance between Rivendell and Mordor is many times as long as the uh, space from Rivendell to the harbors, uh, you know, to the havens. Um, But again, even here we can see that there is this, uh, like we can either go west or we can go south. Either one of them is going to be a very challenging journey. Right, and the 
reason not to go west is that the power of the Lord has grown so great and he's going to suspect that we're going to go that way and the, the two are equal, right? Um, or at least, you know, comparable in their in their distance. Um, yes, good. Lee Smith says, if the ring is more parallel, more parallel, more perilous, it's good to be able to read, uh, to Elrond than all others, doesn't that imply that Elrond is greater or more powerful than Gandalf? Yeah, yeah, it absolutely does. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and that seems to me to make perfect sense. Um, Gandalf, who knows what Gandalf is yet? I think Gandalf is still probably mortal. Probably. Is Gandalf a Maya yet? I don't see any evidence of that. I, I know of no reason to think that Gandalf is a Maya yet. Um, he's a wizard. And wizards are dudes who know magic. Right? That's very clear in The Hobbit. And again, I've seen nothing to contradict that yet. Uh, in The Lord of the Rings, he's long-lived, Right? Um, but of course, so will the Dunedain be eventually, right? Um, so, yeah, so, so Gandalf is important, right? And he's powerful and, and awesome. Um, but he's not yet, his stature is not, I don't, again, I don't see any evidence to say that Gandalf's stature is that high yet. Elrond, though, as soon as those, as soon as the, those, you know, the legendarium doors open, Right, and Elrond of the Hobbit becomes Elrond of the Quintus Silmarillion. Now his his stock has shot up overnight. Right, um, he's a, a super big deal. Again, remember remember those ends of chapters where everything culminates in Elrond, which makes it sound like Elrond is the um, you know sort of the ultimate destiny of the first age. Right, and sort of encapsulated into one person. Elrond is a darn big deal. Uh, in the 1937 Quentin Silmarillion um, and in the 1930 Quentin Older Inwa. So, yeah, Elrond is huge. Now that this Elrond is that Elrond, the idea that he is the most powerful dude. And remember, no Goadriel. She still doesn't exist, right? There is no Goadriel. Elrond is the only... There was Gilgoad and there was Elrond, but Gilgoad is dead, so there's just Elrond, right? Elrond is the biggest king-elf of Middle Earth. So absolutely. He's he's clearly the most powerful dude in the room uh on the continent. Um yeah, yeah. Um yeah, Brianna suggests that his comments about starting with a map was perhaps uh perhaps uh advice of hindsight considering what pains he went through later uh, to get his story to comply to the map he eventually made. Yeah, no, it was an enormous headache for so no no question uh that he had good reason to advise and like folks, don't do it like this, right? Tr- trust me, it doesn't work out well. Um yeah, no, no, I'm sure. I'm sure. Um Yeah. Yeah, good. Um, yes, Carson, that does seem fair to me that, that, that Elrond is no longer the Hobbit Elrond, but Gandalf still has many traces of the Hobbit Gandalf. And yeah, I would be, I would, I would, I would be even firmer about that, Carson, to say that, um, there's little evidence that Gandalf is much more than he was. Um, remember the references to Gandalf's aging at the beginning of, uh, of the Shadow of the Past, right, or ancient history as it still is, um, when Frodo reflects on how much older Gandalf looks, right? Um, 
that's still there, of course, in the published text. He still can age, even when he becomes an incarnate Maya. But, um, but again, I think in the original version, there's no reason not to just take that as, like, he's immortal and he's getting older, right? Still very wise, very powerful, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Jennifer, I agree. Jennifer says, poor Elrond keeps getting continually more dwarfed in power level as uh, revisions continue. Yeah, yeah, this is, uh, we're, we're pretty close to Elrond's high watermark here, I think, actually. Uh, it's all, it's, it's all downhill for Elrond after this. Um, yeah, and Brian does point out very appropriately that there must be two other elf lords with uh, one of the elven rings. Uh, uh, yeah, true, true. Yeah, yeah. No, the, there's, um, but we haven't made them yet, right? So we don't, uh, we don't really know who uh, who those are. Okay, all right. Who shall go with him? Gandalf, Trotter, Sam, Odo, obviously, Falco, and Mary, Glorfindel and Frar, written beneath Burin, son of Balin. Okay, obviously, Odo's got to be a member of the Fellowship, right? I mean, you might as well just bite the bullet and put Odo in from the beginning, because you know you're going to add him in later on, right? Um, But, um, so, truth to tell, I think this is it, isn't it? Isn't isn't this more or less the end of the... uh, uh, the end of the the Odo saga, I think. I think this. I think he's finally uh, Tolkien is finally going to succeed in cutting Odo at last uh, after this. But Odo's final hurrah is to get included explicitly uh, in the Fellowship. So there you go. Um, so the elf and the dwarf, right? Glorfindel. Glorfindel's going to be the elf to go. Um, and the son of Balin, whether his name is Frar or Burin, uh, he's uh, he's the son of Balin. Um, fascinating that the dwarf figure is connected to Balin, so that this and notice how one thing that this seems to suggest, right? Um, it certainly seems to imply that Moria is the manifest destiny of the Fellowship of the Ring, right? That whole path uh, of uh, Karathras was never going to work out for the Fellowship uh, because the fact that the uh, the dwarf, um, uh, uh, the the fact that the dwarf is Balin's son and not, you know, Glowin's son as he's eventually going to be. Um, suggests that that's the plot. You know, that's why we set up the thing with Balin before, and uh, and now where he's going to follow through on that setup um, by linking us directly to the Balin plot. There, um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Tony says, so we could have had six hobbits in the party. I'm not sure that Elrond could have coped. Yeah, uh, it's um. It is interesting, right, that there were going to be... <laughs> it was just going to be Gandalf, Glorfindel, one dwarf, and then there's a passel of hobbits, right? Because, hey, remember, like, it's fate that the hobbits should deal with the ring. This is going to be the hour of the Shire folk indeed, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Brianna's thinking about that random uh, Gondolin elf named Legolas Greenleaf um, uh, in the Book of Lost Tales who leads the refugees out uh, from the sacked city. Um, 
and uh, thinking about Legolas and Glorfindel playing musical chairs between the Gondolin story and the Fellowship of the Ring. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, it is interesting, right, that Legolas was an elf of Gondolin, so we do have that association with Glorfindel. Um, it's not that huge of a departure, actually, you know, when you think about it. Um, but anyway, okay. All right, so wh- what's the plan, Tolkien? Again, n- another one of these plot outlines, which I love so much. South along mountains, over the Red Pass, down the Red Way to the Great, R- to the great River. Beware, said Gandalf, of the giant treebeard who haunts the forest between the river and the south mountains. Fangorn? After a time of rest, they set out. Bilbo bids farewell, gives him Sting and his armor. The others are armed. Snowstorm. Okay. Um, so we still have the giant treebeard, right? You know, who's who here. There's not much. There's not any real evidence that he's changed. Um, he's located, right, geographically. Um, as they're going down, he haunts the forest between the river and the South Mountains. So, if the Misty Mountains are are here, right, and the river is coming along the side, um, no wait, I'm doing it backwards. I'm trying to do it backwards. It was not working, right? And the the river's along the side. Um, so Fangorn is between the mountains and the river down there. So they're going to pass right next to where the giant tree beard lives. So this is a major hazard, one of those major adventures that lies along their way. And think about how he's been kind of planting, you know, planning out the adventures that are going to be happening to them on the route. The giant tree beard still clearly on the docket, right? And, uh, um, haunts, uh, uh, seems to Stephen, an odd verb to use for a giant. Um, well, sort of, I mean, not perhaps not that much actually because haunt did not have its purely sort of spectral implications that it that it tends to have now we only um uh i'm trying to place exactly i think it's mary who uses the word haunts who's he talking about um is it in the conspiracy unmasked and he's talking about Frodo and Frodo's haunts? Am I remembering that correctly? Somebody with the e-text, look up the word haunts in the Fellowship of the Ring. I'm almost certain it's Mary, and I think it's in a conspiracy unmasked. Um, but I know that the word haunts is used in the published text of the Lord of the Rings and in a non a totally non-ghostly sense. Um, something's haunt is just the place that it hangs out in a while, the place where it can very frequently be found. Yes, got it. He said, you've obviously been saying farewell to all of your old haunts for months. Yes, that's exactly. Okay, I got it. I got it. All right. I remembered. Um, Good. Yeah, Kate was remembering it too. Exactly. You've obviously been saying farewell to all of your old haunts. Um, the places that you go and hang out in a lot. Again, nowadays we only use the word for places. Like it's it's only ghosts who hang out in haunts anymore. Um, and of course, more you know, if you uh, tend to be seen in one place very frequently, you could be said to haunt that place, right? And now only ghosts are allowed to haunt places. But that word was not so narrow in its usage uh, back then. Um, but uh, but there is still something kind of sinister about this, even though there's nothing necessarily spectral or undead about this, right? But uh, um, he haunts the forest between the river and the South Mountains, the implication being he's always around there, and you never know when you're going to run into him, right? I mean, it's... it's uh, 
notice that although they're warned about Fangorn in the published text, there's not like a huge chance that like going down the river near the forest, they're going to be spotted and pounced upon by Treebeard the Ent, right? Um, Treebeard the Giant is clearly a different story, right? He's going to be on... He, he, he hangs out down there a lot, and he's going to be on the lookout, and he's clearly uh, uh, trouble, because Gandalf is warning you uh, about them. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, good. Um... Excellent. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, nice. Uh, Lee is reminding us, of course, of the verb, uh, like, people can be haunted by guilt, uh, etc., even now. Yeah, meaning, like, the emotion comes and hangs out with you frequently, right? Um, Absolutely. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, Oh, yeah, Tony, no, I I know that the phrase haunted house is is, is already being used. Um, But again, it's it's just, it is, it does have that usage. But in modern usage, it's almost the only one left. It's certainly the primary ones and dwarfs all of the other usages. Um, whereas that, that was less true, I think. Um, anyway, okay. Okay. Um, let's keep going. Elrond welcomed Frodo. So now we're doing the prose version, of course, of the, of the chapter. Elrond welcomed Frodo and drew him to a seat at his knee and presented him to the company saying, Here, my friends, is the hobbit who by fortune and courage has brought the ring to Rivendell. This is Frodo, son of Drogo. He then pointed out and named those whom Frodo had not seen before. There was a younger dwarf at Glowin's side. Burin, the son of Balin, changed to his son Gimli. So right here, in the midst of this paragraph, we're ditching the Balin plot, and we're bringing in Gimli. Um... It does seem a little hard to explain, like, why is Borin, son of Balin, there? Why wasn't he with his dad, right? Um, I don't know if that's the reason why Tolkien made that change, but it certainly makes more sense that Glowin's son Gimli would be with his father at the council, right? There were three councillors of Elrond's own household. Aristor, his kinsman, a man of the same half-elvish folk known as the children of Luthien, and beside him two elf lords of Rivendell. There was a strange elf clad in green and brown, Galdor, a messenger from the king of the wood elves in eastern Mirkwood, and seated a little apart was a tall man of noble face, but dark and sad. Here, said Elrond, turning to Gandalf, is Boromir, from the land of Ond, far in the south. He arrived in the night, and brings tidings that must be considered. All right. And I love Christopher's comment that... Elrond introduces Boromir by saying he brings tidings that must be considered, and then he never delivers his tidings. We never hear what Boromir was coming to say uh, in this first version of it. Um, Yeah. Uh, Anyway, okay. Yeah, Kate, I... Yeah, absolutely. Of course, Kate Neville, who is uh, uh, saying this, was at the Vermont Tolkien Conference and gave an awesome paper. Can I, Kate, can I plug your paper? Uh, Kate gave an, a, a wonderful paper uh, on the, 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 the mirror image relationship. She was pointing out, and I'd never really noticed this in this much detail before, um, how almost exactly mirror image are the stories of Baron and Luthien and the stories of... Uh, of uh, the story of Aeol and... Uh, Erethel. Um and it was it was it was a uh, it, uh, it was a great paper, um, so I really enjoyed that. Anyway, so yeah, so anyway, so Kate and I are both thinking the same thing here. 
the half-elvish folk, right? So Elrond, there's a bunch of other half-elvish folk. And now remember, as I've said before, and I was just, Kate is recalling me just talking about at my, uh, at my address in Vermont over the weekend, um, the bunch of other half elves kicking around <laughs> Rivendell in the Hobbit is one of the clearest uh, 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 giveaways that he's not talking about Silmarillion Elrond, that he's just borrowed the name Elrond uh, and applied it to this half elvish dude who uh, uh, sort of lives in this in, in this liminal pl- spot right between the uh, uh, between the, the the tame world and the wild in the Hobbit. Um, so why are there still a bunch of half elvish folk? Right. If the floodgates have opened and he's uh, and he's he's fully connected with his legendarium, why are there other half elves around? It should be just him and his own family, right? There aren't any other half elves. Um, and the answer: these are green elves. Ultimately, that's why they're called uh, the children of Luthien. Remember, Baron and Luthien go to live among the people who will, in the published Silmarillion, be called the Green Elves. And as Christopher points out in his commentary, they're called half-elves even in the 1937 Quenta Silmarillion, not because they're half-elf and half-human, as is explicitly said in The Hobbit, right? Um, but because they are half-Eldar and half-non-Eldar. Um, in the very fluid definitions of who is an Eldar and who is not an Eldar, like the Eldar and the Avari, and who exactly qualifies to be called one of the Eldar, and and, and that definition shifted uh, a great deal in Tolkien's conception through the early Silmarillion material. Um, but uh, anyway, so... Um, so he calls them in the 1937 Quintus Silmarillion. He calls those those elves who will eventually be called the Green Elves of Osirian. He calls them half elven because they're sort of Eldar and they're sort of not, and they're associated with Luthien and Baron because Baron and Luthien go to live among them and and, and essentially rule them as Lord and Lady. Um, uh, after the return, right? You know, uh, um, from after their return from death. Um, so it's them. Those are the ones. And it makes all kinds of sense that some of those group of, of, of that group of elves would survive. And if they did that, they would live with Elrond in, uh, in, in Rivendell because he's the heir uh, of Luthien and Baron, whom they served and loved. So that makes a lot of sense. Um, but again, both of those things, both the calling of them half-elves in the 1937 Quinta Silmarillion and this reference here, um, those are consistent with each other, and both of them postdate the writing of The Hobbit significantly, right? So if anything, we can see him beginning to kind of develop the idea. But anyway, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, cool. Let's see. Oh, I lost my train of thought. What else was I going to talk about? Okay, so we have uh, uh, Galdor, right? Okay, so we have Aristor, and we have uh, Galdor, a strange elf clad in green and brown, right? A messenger from the king of the wood elves in eastern Mirkwood. So, okay. So here is our Legolas figure who is not yet called that, but he's called he's called Galdor, uh, and that's fine. And as remember, as Christopher Tolkien points out, Galdor is not yet the father of uh, Hurin, uh, in the Silmarillion, um, which Galdor, he'll, he will be Hurin, son of Galdor, son of Hador, um, eventually in the published Silmarillion. That's what Hurin will be. Um, he's not yet. He's still Hurin, son of Gumlin, son of Hador, uh, in uh, the 1937 Quintus Silmarillion. 
Um, okay, and we have Boromir of the Land of Ond. One caution I would give. Uh, be careful about assumptions that you make about the Andorians, as I suppose we would have to call them, right? Uh, be careful about making assumptions about the Andorians. Uh, are they connected in any way with the Dunedain? With the people of Numenor? I haven't seen any evidence of that, have you? It's really easy to assume that, right? I mean, because uh, we've been waiting for Gondor to come in, right? And here it almost is. It's Andor, not Gondor. But hey, you know... But for the letter G, we're 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 sort of there, or almost there, right? Um, but uh, but uh, no, yeah, there's they're not they're not Dunedain, they're not Numenorians. Remember the Numenorians, the story of Numenor. He's just been writing the Lost Road and the Fall of Numenor and all that other stuff. It it's it's that comes from the few years before his beginning to write the Lord of the Rings. But the last, the end of the story of the people of, where the story of the Numenorians peters off is after the sinking of the island of Numenor, there are some remnants of the Numenorians that escape to Middle-earth. Um, but it's not just like a few families. It's like, a, you know, it's like a bunch of random people and they're still building ships and they're building towers and they're trying to find the straight road to get back to Numenor, at least to see it. But, uh, um... But they're they're on the coast. They're they're over. That's 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 who they are. That's where they are. Um, the land of Ond is far in the south, right? Way away from the Numenorians, right? Um, now we're going to get an explanation later on for why there would be Numenorians down there, but we've got nothing like that yet. Everything we know about Numenorians says that they lived up where Gilgalad was. That's why Elendil and Gilgalad were hanging out and formed the last alliance, right? Because that's where the descendants of Numenor were. The rangers could be descendants of Numenor, right? Because that's just the kind of thing you would expect them to be. That is, never having had a kingdom at all, right? Really. Um, So there's no Arnor, there's no Gondor uh, in the later sense. There are no Numenorian realms in exile, just a bunch of Numenorians hanging out, and one of them rose to be a chieftain in Camp Elendil, I mean, of course, and 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 um, brought his people together and and fought alongside Gilgalad and everything, and that was awesome. That piece of awesomeness again was part uh, rewritten four times um, at the end of the Fall of Numenor, but. Um, uh, and and the the theme is still similar, but it's not uh, those people, those remnants of the great people who are off wandering around. If anything, they tend to become kings of lesser realms, not to form a special kingdom of their own. Um, so try not to assume or to imagine that those Andorians, including our friend Boromir, are Numenorians at all. It's just a kingdom, a strong kingdom. There's literally only one thing that we know about it at this point, right? The one thing we know about it is that they are hard and tough. Why? Because of the name, right? It's the land of Ond, and that means the land of stone. Ond means stone. Um, that's what the, in like in Gondolin, right? Um, the Lin at the end, is like Ainulindale, that means uh, song, and uh, the the Gond means stone, so Gondolin means the singing singing stone. Um, uh, you know, it, it combines those two those two word concepts. So, Ond is stone, right? The land of Ond. 
Um, so the Stone Kingdom, right? That's all we know about them. So they're tough and they live really far away and they're down in the south and so therefore in the vaguely Mordor-ish direction. That's all we got. Um, and they apparently have a king and Boromir is their son, right? Um, as far as we know. Um, okay, good. Let's see. Uh, Jennifer and Stephen are both both asking about um, uh, Boromir's darkness. Uh, let's see. And Cedar Lillipart was a tall man of noble face, but dark and sad. Um, does it refer to coloration? And if so, skin coloration? Um, is it about his mood? I'm not sure. Um, the coupling with sad makes me think that it is about his mood rather than about his... And and the opposition as well. Um, there are many who are noble and dark, right? Darkness is not uh, opposite of being noble, right? But being noble of face but dark of mood, that would be kind of in conflict, right? Um, that would deserve a but, there. It's the but that leads me to suspect, uh, the combination of the but and the coupling with sad that lead me to suggest that that dark is a description of his mood uh, or his attitude or demeanor rather than a physical description of his coloration, whether of hair or skin. Um, that's what I, that's what I suspect. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and 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 you're right. Yeah, the stone the stone in Gon- in in Gondor doesn't sing. Apparently, yeah, the entirely mute stones, as far as we can tell. Um, and Tom Wright, the the way that he 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 holds himself aloof, the fact that he's seated a little apart, right, also does suggest that uh, perhaps his mood is dark. Whether he is uh, broodingly holding himself apart, or whether everybody else is sort of scooching away from the from the brooding guy, right? One way or the other, uh, he is certainly separated. Okay. Now, Trotter's shoes. It would take long to tell of all the things that were spoken in that council, well, not nearly as long as it's going to take later on. Many of them were known already to Frodo. Gandalf spoke long, making clear to those who did not already know, already know the tale in full the ancient history of the ring and the reasons why the Dark Lord so greatly desired it. Bilbo then gave an account of the finding of the ring in the Cave of the Misty Mountains, and Trotter described his search for Gollum that he had made with Gandalf's help, and told of his perilous adventures in Mordor. Thus it was that Frodo learned how Trotter had tracked Gollum as he wandered southwards, through Fangorn Forest, and past the dead marshes, until he had himself been caught and imprisoned by the Dark Lord. Ever since I have worn shoes, said Trotter with a shudder, and though he said no more, Frodo knew that he had been tortured, and his feet hurt in some way, but he had been rescued by Gandalf and saved from death." Um, I don't think, therefore, that his wooden shoes are merely cosmetic, like his feet were tortured and have been so disfigured that he wears shoes to hide them. That may be a factor, right? So as not to freak people out by his uh, now hideously scarred and mutilated feet, um, which it sounds like he has, um, whether the feet are... So again, whether the shoes are merely to conceal uh, the uh, the 
you know, the, the ruins of his tortured feet or whether they are actually, they actually sort of, ex, uh, um, you know, sort of assist him in some way. Um, but, uh, but of course you'll remember the note that Christopher makes in talking about this passage that in at least, you know, one note that Tolkien wrote to this, he was contemplating the idea of having Trotter have entirely wooden feet that, uh, that he lost his feet. Uh, entirely, they 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 either were cut off or had to be amputated afterwards because they were so uh, terribly uh, um, uh, tortured. And he has wooden actual, so so they're not even shoes, right? He just has prosthetic wooden feet. Um, one way or another, we can see now why Bilbo and Trotter weren't so eager to talk about it during the happy reunion earlier on, right? Um, so. Uh, and this, of course, and we see what has happened here, right? The now we get the PTSD thing, right? Uh, Trotter was captured by was imprisoned by the Dark Lord. How was he rescued by Gandalf? It says, right? So Gandalf went into Barad-dûr, or was it still in Dogul-dûr, perhaps? But anyway. He was imprisoned by the Dark Lord, and Gandalf rescued him and saved his life, though perhaps not his feet. Um, and so we see, you know, Trotter is remembering an old torture, right? He was captured and tortured grievously, apparently. I mean, that sounds really awful. Um, and again, lends greater depth to Trotter's character. By the way, this is something um, uh, that seems to me entirely characteristic of Tolkien, how we got there. Um, does this mean that that was what was in Tolkien's mind all along when he had Trotter? Remember Trotter doing his PTSD thing, right? When the ring rates were mentioned and the Black Riders are mentioned and he's all like sort of putting his head down and covering his face with his hands and, uh, you know, like he's getting these horrible flashbacks associated with him. And he says, Brad, you know, you, you obviously don't know the Black Riders like I do, right? Um, well... So, the question is, does that show that this is the kind of thing that Tolkien had in mind all along? My argument would be, no. No, I don't think there's any evidence to think that Tolkien had this in mind all the way along. Um, We see Tolkien doing this kind of thing all the time. This seems to be a very standard pattern of Tolkien's. Um, I, I was talking about this this weekend in Vermont, too. Tolkien is not the kind... There are some people who want to make Tolkien into a particular kind of genius, uh, namely like the kind of genius that J.K. Rowling is always trying to depict herself as being, namely the mastermind who always knew all along all of the cool things and always intended everything, right? Um, That's the, 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 the... There are a lot of people who like to think of Tolkien as that particular kind of genius. And I'm not saying that that kind of genius doesn't exist. Obviously, I don't believe that J.K. Rowling is one. Um... But I don't believe that Tolkien was one either. That's not his kind of genius. Um, The actual writing and planning is only half of Tolkien's work. The other half of Tolkien's work is reading what he wrote and making stuff out of that, right? Um, So what seems to me to happen there is that... uh, um, Trotter 
has this moment, right? He so there's this moment where they're talking to Trotter, and this happens the very first time we meet Trotter, right? When Trotter's character is first being invented, they're talking about the Black Riders, and it's clear that there's been some traumatic experience in the past, but from the evidence, it seems obvious Tolkien has no idea what that he doesn't even know who Trotter is right he has no concept of a backstory for Trotter and that seems really obvious right from all the things that we have read and seen about Trotter so what has he done what is Tolkien doing right what we do we see well he that but that that thing that scene with Trotter covering his face that's a received fact now right and so that's what Tolkien does. He takes what he wrote before, treats it as a received fact, and says, well, what must the story be in order to explain the received fact? Uh, so we're now getting this backstory for Trotter uh, developed after the fact. Um, and, 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 and it fits the wooden shoes in too, right? So we had these two things about Trotter that were unexplained before, and now we fit them all together into one explanation. And another thing, uh, which is explaining something about the relationship between Trotter and Gandalf, right? Why is it that uh, Trotter and Gandalf trust each other so much, right? Um, why is it that they are uh, so close? Well, we can see how long they've worked together the kinds of things they have done together. I mean, when you think about this, I mean, one thing that strikes me here, think of Bilbo and his relationship with Gandalf, right? In his great adventure. And Peregrine and his relationship with Gandalf and Peregrine's great adventure here, right? Of the two, Peregrine's is kind of the bigger deal. I mean, of course, the finding of the ring makes Bilbo's adventure super momentous, but, um, you know, and therefore, you know, Peregrine's adventure is sort of, uh, you know, subsidiary, but um, it is kind of amazing, actually, when you stop and think from this perspective, how significant, what a story that would make. Again, it would be a bigger adventure story than The Hobbit would was, right? And Gandalf's role in it is even more central. And Gandalf's uh, uh, friendship with and closeness to Peregrine is obviously going to be very much greater even than his relationship with Bilbo uh, because of um, both what we see about him, him, Peregrine, setting off on this adventure uh, in order to assist Gandalf. He's already being treated as a colleague, right at the beginning of the adventure. And then, of course, with, uh, you know, ending up the story with Gandalf coming in and, and rescuing him and saving him from death uh, and, uh, you know, enabling him to walk on his wooden feet or, or, uh, or to, uh, uh, you know, to get along with his wooden shoes. It's, uh, it's kind of, it's kind of amazing. Yana is wondering if this is Tolkien writing in a backdoor pilot. I don't think so. I mean, he doesn't seem to be threatening to write the story of, of, you know, Peregrine, Boffin or Peregrine took. And, uh, he is a Boffin, right? Cause he's the, he's related to, he's not a took because he was one of the, the sons of, of old took's daughters, right? Which is one of the other three remarkable daughters of the old took. Right. Um, so, uh, so he's a, he's a Boffin, I think, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> and Yana insists wearing wooden shoes is an accomplishment on its own. You know, he's, 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 I promise it isn't easy to wear wooden shoes on his honor uh, as a, 
Nederlander. It's it's uh, it's uh, absolutely. I, I hear you. I'm totally ready to believe it. Uh, so you're saying what you're saying is that the association between wooden shoes and torture is a legitimate connection, right? That there's real, there's <laughs> right. Good, good. Um, okay. Excellent. Excellent. Hey, oh, Yana, I'm so delighted. I pronounced that correctly. I wasn't sure if I was going to or not. So I'm glad. Thank you. Um, good. Um, all right. Um, yeah, good. Um, and Jennifer points out, uh, thinking about Christopher's reference to the plans that we're going to get to later on of uh, of Frodo being captured by Sauron, right? Oh, actually, and we got references to that before, Jennifer, right? Uh, when Sam was going to rescue him, right, from uh, Barad-dur, that that contributes even further to the mirroring of uh, of Frodo and, and Trotter, I agree, I agree. Um, okay, so what an interesting character Trotter was. Again, you know... It's going to be fun when we get Aragorn finally, but I'm going to miss Trotter, man. Okay. Elrond was also deeply interested in the events of the Old Forest and on the Barrow Downs. The Barrow Whites I knew of, he said, for they are closely akin to the Riders, and I marvel at your escape from them. But never before have I heard tell of this strange Bombadil. I would like to know more of him. Did you know of him, Gandalf? Yes, answered the wizard, and I sought him out at once, as soon as I found that the hobbits had disappeared from Buckland. When I had chased the riders from Crick Hollow, I turned back to visit him. I dare say he would have kept the travellers longer in his home if he had known that I was near, but I am not sure of it. He is a strange creature, and follows his own counsels, which few can fathom. And that will remain true until the end of time. Um, but, um, okay. Gandalf visited Tom Bombadil interesting thing, right? And still beat them to Bree by a substantial margin, apparently. Um, which just goes to show how much distance he can cover. But, um, uh, notice the kinship between the Barrow Whites and the Riders is still close. Remember, they were identified before, and they've not yet moved very far apart. Um, and we have the authority of Elrond on that, which is really interesting. Um, Elrond, though, for all of his high stature, never met Tom Bombadil, right? I mean, come on, man. How'd you never meet Tom Bombadil? The peril is greater on the western road, for my heart tells me that... My heart tells me that is the road which Sauron will expect us to take when he hears what has befallen. And if we take it, he will pursue us swiftly and surely, since we must make for the havens beyond the towers. Those he would certainly destroy, even if he found us not, and there would be thereafter no way of escape for the elves from the darkening world. And the Shire, too, would be destroyed, said Trotter in a low voice, looking towards Bilbo and Frodo. But on the other road, said Elrond, with speed and skill the travellers might go far unmarked, I do not say there is great hope in the quest, but only in this way could any lasting good be achieved. In the ring is hidden much of the ancient power of Sauron. Even though he does not hold it, that power still lives and works for him and towards him. As long as the ring lives on land or sea, he will not be overcome. While the ring lasts, he will grow and have hope, and the fear lest the ring come into his hand again will ever weigh on the world." War will never cease while that fear lives, and all men will be turned to him. Okay, so we have now stated very clearly um, uh, 
stated very clearly this idea that the destruction of the ring is the only way to get rid of Sauron, right? He, as long as the ring exists in the world, he's going to continue to grow. Not just continue, but he's going to continue to grow, right? And things are going to get worse. Um, okay. Two things here. Again, first, a recollection of the geography. Again, see again here. This is the other place that I was referring to earlier where we get that sense of like we could go west i mean remember he they, they talk and i think it's, it's not here it's in it's in a slightly earlier passage where they talk about like what a long and dangerous road it is to the west to the havens right um or again there's no sense of it being comparatively short right compared to the road to mordor um but the thing that emerges for me really clearly here which more clearly than i get in the published text um they don't go to the havens. So there are two ways uh, in which the going south is advantageous compared to the going west, right? Um, one is that if they go west, he doesn't even need to track them, right? Because he knows their destiny. He knows where they're going, Right. If they're obviously if they're going to the West trying to get over sea, they can only get over sea from the Grey Havens. He doesn't have to track them. He doesn't have to trap them. All he has to do is just go to the Grey Havens and destroy them and wait. Right. Just sort of sit there and wait for them to show up. So that's why, obviously, they can't go to the Havens. Nobody makes that argument in the published Council of Elrond. The other thing that is emerges much more clearly here is this idea of of their actually attempting to save the havens the disaster that would come i mean we get the reference to the disaster that would come if the gray havens were destroyed uh in the published council of elrond but it seems uh, elrond seems to suggest that by going south they would they would remain unmarked for longer but when they are detected they're going to be drawing Sauron's attention away from the Grey Havens. He could march on the Grey Havens, still, if he wanted to. But if they're headed south, he's not going to bother, right? Because it's going to be a lower priority than finding the ring. Um, so there's a sense in which he's drawing... The, and of course, as Trotter points out, from the Shire as well. Because if he destroys the Havens, he's going to destroy the Shire on the way through, right? So... Um, but I love the fact that Trotter says that, and he says it in a low voice, as if privately towards Bilbo and Frodo, like the elves might be worried about the havens. But you know, FYI, he'd also be, you know, he'd he'd, he'd destroy the sh- the 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 Shire as a twofer on that deal, right? That would be a little side effect of his destroying, and we might kind of care about that, perhaps. So the elves don't care about it even enough to mention it. But uh, uh, anyway, yeah. Um, so anyhow, okay. Um, so Kimber asks uh, a sensible question. He says, why can't the elves sail away from elsewhere? Because it's not just about sailing. Um, it's about the straight road. Uh, y- if you sail out from anywhere else, you're just going to get to somewhere else, right? You're just going to be sailing around the globe. You can't, you gotta, you, you gotta, la- there's, 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 a, there's only a few launching points onto the straight road where you leave the earth behind and sail off towards Valinor, which is not on the globe anymore. So uh, if you want to go somewhere that is off the globe, you've got to go from the right starting point. And Círdan is made the keeper of the place where you can hit the straight road. That's why there are towers uh, out there, because those are the towers built by the Numenorians to watch for the, to watch for the, the straight road. Um, so yeah, no, uh, very limited, uh, 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 number of on-ramps to the straight road, Stephen. Absolutely. 
Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, oh yeah. So anyway, so I, I love this idea of like, let's, let's do two things at once, right? Let's take the ring towards, you know, into danger towards the, you know, let's try to make a, uh, uh, an end to this once and for all and attempt to destroy the ring. And by the way, we'll also be protecting the Havens by drawing Sauron's attention away from it so that he won't destroy it. Um, uh, yeah. Okay. I do not understand this, said Boromir. Why should the elves and their friends not use the Great Ring to defeat Sauron? And I say that all men will not join him. The men of Ond will never submit, because they're stony, right? Strong as stone. Never is a long word, O Boromir, said Elrond. The men of Ond are valiant and still faithful amid a host of foes, but valor alone cannot withstand Sauron forever. Many of his servants are as valiant, but as for the ruling ring, it belongs to Sauron and is filled with his spirit. Its might is too great for those of lesser strength, as Bilbo and Frodo have found, and in the end it must lead them captive to him if they keep it. For those who have power of their own, its danger is far greater. With it they might perchance overthrow the Dark Lord, but they would set themselves in his throne. Then they would become as evil as he or worse, for nothing is evil in the beginning. Even Sauron was not so. I dare not take the ring to wield it. Notice how Elrond tactfully omits to specify whether Boromir would count as one of those of lesser strength or one of those who have power of their own. I kind of leaves that to himself, right? I'm not going to say which category you belong to, but suffice to say, in either case, the outlook is bad, right? So, um, so let's not go there, Boromir. Um, and, uh, um, and yet, Yana, the fact that he is independent, right? Unattached. Um, remember in the published, when, when Trotter becomes Aragorn, right? Boromir and Aragorn are going to have that thing right at the council, right? There, there's going to be this tension there from the beginning. Um, and this sense of rivalry, uh, which seems to be connected with, you know, so Boromir's desire to not only defend Gondor, but promote himself, right? Uh, and increase his own power and influence. Um, not to be a steward, but to be a king. To be neither thief nor trekker, right? Uh, anyway, that, that's, 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 a th- that's a story from the published version, but without Aragorn there, we don't have that, right? Um, the first time Boromir says, I don't understand this, you know, why shouldn't we use the Great Ring? It seems like, this is a perfectly good question, right? If he didn't ask it, somebody else would have had to ask it, right? That That's a that's a very sensible question. Um, and, uh, yeah, so John uh, asks, or sorry, John Oskowas asks, is Boromir a name Tolkien has used in the Silmarillion up to this point? Yes, it just appeared for the first time in the 1937 Quintus Silmarillion as the name of the son of Bor. Uh, Bor the Easterling dude uh, at the Nirnith Arnoidiad, right, that guy? Bor and his son Boromir. Yep, so it showed up there. Um, but he seems to have, he seems to have commandeered it at this point. Um, and it's, I mean, it was only, it's, it's, it's not a long-standing name. It's, it's a, it's, it's a very new and recent name. And so in that sense is a name that's kind of fresh in, uh, in Tolkien's mind. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. Um, so 
Great question, Boromir. Thanks for asking. Glad that you... Um, and Kate, yeah, I think I think he is one of the good Easterlings. Yeah, yeah, he's not because it's it's uh, uh, it's the you guys. I know it is in the published Silmarillion, and I think in the nineteen thirty seven Quenta as well. It's the, the the dudes who begin with you who are bad news, and the dudes who begin with B who are good news. Uh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Anyway, okay, sorry. Um, so I get no, notice Land of Ond, right? Who are they? What are they? Well, they're valiant and still faithful amid a host of foes. So they're like the faithful men in the Silmarillion, like the three households of the, you know, the three, the three, the three families of the Edain, I guess, kind of. That doesn't mean they're derived from them. It doesn't mean they're Numenorians. It just means they're parallel to them, right? Just like in the old days, we have some kingdoms of men that apparently are faithful and still enemies of Sauron, but they're surrounded by foes, right? They're surrounded by a host of foes, not just orcs, presumably, um, but other uh, malevolent, you know, because allied with Sauron kingdoms of men. All right. The three remain still, said Elrond. They have conferred great power on the elves, but they have never yet availed them in their strife with Sauron, for they came from Sauron himself, and can give no skill or knowledge that he did not already possess at their making. And to each race, the rings of the Lord bring such powers as each desires and is capable of wielding. The elves desired not strength or dominion or riches, but subtlety of craft and lore, and knowledge of the secrets of the world's being. These things they have gained, yet with sorrow. But they will turn to evil if Sauron regains the ruling ring, for then all that the elves have devised or learned with the power of the rings will become his, as was his purpose. Now, this is really interesting, and nothing like... We haven't seen anything exactly like this before with with the Ring of Power stuff. Um, So, okay... Always to this point, the idea that the elven rings are rings distributed by Sauron, just like all the rest of them, that's been consistently true from the very beginning. It's only right after this that we're going to get that first suggestion that, nah, 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 hang on, the elves made their own rings. Um, and that they and that, that motivated Sauron to make the ruling ring. That's not the story yet, right? We just have these rings that he made. Notice how now he's, Tolkien is now fitting more clearly than he's ever done before all of those ruling rings, all of those great rings, into a clear pattern. What do the other rings do? The rings that sound distributed. What are they, and how do they work? Right? Um, And the answer is different than we've seen before. Remember, when Gandalf was first talking about the other rings, it sounded like it was, the, 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 the purpose was just wraithification. Right? Um, like it's it's it, it it entraps you, it makes you into a wraith, then you chuck it away for somebody else to pick up and find to make somebody else a wraith, right? So it's it's for the it's it's for the making of wraiths. Notice here he doesn't talk like that. Now maybe wraithification would be a side effect as well if Sauron has the ruling ring, but that's not the emphasis, right? What did the ruling what did the rings of power do? They give to each holder uh, uh, they, 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 they bring such powers as each desires and is capable of wielding. Such powers as each desires. So they're flexible, right? It could give you strength and dominion if you, you're into that kind of thing, 
right? It could give you riches if you're a dwarf. So probably, probably the men chose the strength and dominion, right? The dwarves we know chose the riches, right? What did the elves choose? What did the elves use their rings for? Subtlety of craft and lore, of course, right? And knowledge of the secrets of the world's being. So craftsmanship, lore, and scientific inquiry, right? That's what the elves used their rings for. Um, so, okay, so what, what was Sauron's angle here? Why is he giving... Because at first it sounded like they were just traps, right? You know, like, hey, try on my great and powerful ring that I'm giving to you. Oh, sucker, it just turned you into a wraith, actually. I was, I was just manipulating you the whole time, right? No, it actually gives them power. Right, and we saw that it actually did help the dwarves to accumulate riches. So we we know that there was some power there. But anyway, why? Because then that power Sauron gets. So this is just part of it. It's like a pyramid scheme, right? You give power to your underlings, but then their power becomes your power, right? And because everything that they learn with it is revealed to you, and so anything that you know, any little tips on strength and dominion that they pick up become your knowledge and. You know, becomes your strength and dominion. Uh, any riches that they get becomes your riches, right? Any subtlety of craft and lore that they develop becomes your subtlety of craft and lore. So that's um, that's the way the ruling ring works. And that's a fascinating glimpse. Nothing, well, I won't say nothing like, but pretty distinctly unlike what we've seen about the rings of power before. Um, they will turn to evil if Sauron regains the ruling ring. So even though the elf rings were made by Sauron, and for Sauron's purposes, they can be used benevolently and benignly, right? That is, they don't harm the elves automatically. The things that they do don't turn to evil automatically. They're not complete trapped, so long as the ruling ring isn't wielded, right? If Sauron gets the the ruling ring, then he will turn everything done to them to evil. But... He, but they're not automatically evil. They're not just corrupted from the root, the rings and the things that are done with the other rings. And that's really interesting. Um, uh, Brian says, are we meant to understand that Rivendell was created or maintained by the power of the elven rings? No, I don't, not exactly. Not in the way that we later do. Remember, the power of the rings is going to be different later on. He's going to change this. Um, some of the, and they're still interested in these things, right? But that's not going to be with the focus of the ruling of the of the Elven Rings, as we're going to see them later on in the story. So yeah, no, I don't think we're there yet. I don't think we're there yet. Um. Okay. Um. <laughs> Jennifer's thinking that it, if uh, the elves aren't interested in strength or domination or riches, maybe they finally, eventually, learned their lesson. Is that certainly? Uh, there, there certainly were elves who were into that kind of thing earlier on, true enough. At last, with an effort, he spoke. If this task is fated to fall to the weak, he said, I will attempt it, but I shall need the help of the strong and the wise. I think, Frodo, said Elrond, looking keenly at him, that this task is appointed for you, but it is very well that you should offer yourself unbidden. All the help that we can contrive shall be yours. But you won't send him alone, surely, master, cried Sam. No, indeed, said Elrond, turning to him. You at least shall go, since you are here, although I do not think you were summoned. It seems difficult to separate you from your master, Frodo. Sam subsided, but whispered to Frodo, How far is this mountain? A nice pickle we have landed ourselves in, Mr. Frodo. 
Taking care of hobbits is not a task that everyone would like, said Gandalf, but I am used to it. I suggest Frodo and his Sam, Merry, Faramond, and myself. That is five. And Glorfindel, if he will come to lend us the wisdom of the elves. We shall need it. That is six. And Odo, because if we don't take him along, he's just going to come following after us. Sorry, just kidding. And Trotter, said Peregrine from the corner. That is seven, and a fitting number. The ring-bearer will have good company. Okay, so, uh, Nancy, I really like that too. Nancy loves the line uh, that it is not a task that everyone would like, right? Hobbit sitting isn't for everybody, you know, but I'm I'm, uh, I'm inured to it, so uh, uh, I can put up with it. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, (laughs) Yeah, it's okay. Um, This is the, so this is the first version. He's going to rewrite this almost right away. And when he does rewrite it, he comes out with something that's almost exactly like the published text. He he gets, he gets there very quickly. Um, But um, the thing that's interesting about this, about this sort of initial run through of the scene, especially in that first exchange with Frodo, right? Um, what, what to me is really interesting, he, Tolkien is being extremely direct, right? They're just kind of spilling out exactly what's happening here, right? If this task is fated to fall to the weak, I will attempt it, but I shall need the help of the strong, right? That's what Frodo is saying when he says, I will take the ring, but I don't know the way, right? But he's not, like, saying it in so many words, right? Whereas he does say it in so many words here this first time. We can see, it's as if we can see Tolkien working through the concepts, right? And then deciding, like, oh, okay, let me come at the scene a little bit differently and, and do this better. But but it's still the same stuff that he's getting at. Same thing with Elrond, right? Um, it is very well that you should offer yourself unbidden is not something that he says explicitly. But it is something that he does suggest, nevertheless. Um, and notice the parallel here that he seems to be establishing with the end of ancient history, right? Where, again, Gandalf did the same thing to him. There's really kind of only one thing you could do, but, oh, I'm glad you volunteered, right? It's still important that he makes the choice. Um, so we're going to have seven companions. Five hobbits and two, right? Frodo, Sam, Mary, Faramond, and Trotter. Yeah, five. Five hobbits and Gandalf and Gorfindel, Right? And we're going to go dwarfless, apparently, uh, because we only get uh, we only get seven here. Um, so you see the consequence of cutting Odo, right? You cut Odo, you've got to cut the dwarves too, because then we don't have nine anymore. So, see, it's just not worth it in the end. Um, the idea of Glorfindel actually going with them is kind of cool, actually. Uh, uh, do we have a number of the Black Riders yet? Yeah, I think I, I think we have nine. Right. There were seven at one point. Seven and nine are the two numbers, right? So you kind of... But I, I, I do think I do think that they were nine now, officially. I'm trying to remember because there's so many conflicting things on this. But I'm pretty sure. If I'm remembering correctly, there are definitely nine riders now. Okay. Faramond. Faramond, of course, is the one who really is Pippin, but just doesn't have that name yet, right? Uh, he's he's waiting for the name of Peregrine to be abdicated by its current owner. I don't see that your inclusion will help much in that way, said Faramond. This is, of course, uh, uh, Mary has just been the one who has said that there needs to be someone with intelligence in the party, right? Um, uh, and then Faramond is the one who responds. I don't see that your inclusion will help much in that way, said Faramond. But, of course, you must go, and I must too. 
We hobbits must stick together. We seem to have become mighty important these days. It would be a bit of an eye-opener for the people back in the Shire. I doubt it, said Frodo. Hardly any of them would believe a word of it. I wish I was one of them and back in Hobbiton. Anyone who wants can have all my importance. Quite accidental. Quite accidental, as I keep on telling you, said a voice behind them. They turned to see Gandalf hurrying round a bend in the path. Hobbit voices carry a long way, he said. All right in Rivendell, or I hope so, but I should not discuss matters so loud outside the house. Your, important is ac your importance is accidental, Frodo, by which I mean someone else might have been chosen and done as well. But it is real. No one else can have it now. So be careful. You can't be too careful. As for you two, if I let you come, you'll have to do just what you are told, and I shall make other arrangements for the supply of intelligence. Ah, now we know who is who really is important, laughed Mary. Gandalf is never in doubt about that, and does not let anyone else doubt it. So you are making all the arrangements already, are you? Uh, I love the, the ribbing at Gandalf that Mary gets in here. Uh, Gandalf is never in any doubt about who's really important. Uh, that's, uh, that's, uh, that's, it's uh, wonderful. Um, yeah, notice that there's, there's, a, there's still going to be, you know, we can still foresee a distinct decrease in hobbitry, right? Uh, you, you know, even between these drafts uh, and the eventually published text. Um, yes, Nancy. Nancy says that Gandalf is an honorary hobbit. Yes, exactly. You can tell how much they think of him um, by, uh, by, by what a hard time they give him. Um, and I love the stuff about accidental importance, right? Uh, here's Gandalf following up on the hint that he gave to Frodo in Bag End, right? Um, you know, about, um, you know, don't think it's because of anything that, that, uh, that, that others don't have, like strength or wisdom or, or anything like that, right? It's, you know, you've not been chosen for this because you're qualified or anything, uh, or more qualified than anybody else. Your importance is quite accidental, right? Um, accidental, uh, but real, right? And this distinction, you know, that language is gonna is gonna go away. I don't know. I mean, it's a little bit confusing, um, but but interesting that Gandalf is insisting on it, right? Um, is he worried that Frodo's going to become arrogant? Um, that pride is perhaps a, a mechanism that the Ring is going to use, or that it might be even a sign of the Ring's. Um, you know, kind of encroaching power over him. I don't know exactly what, you know, why Gandalf feels like he's got to come running up and stomp on this, uh, you know, talk about importance, right? Um, uh, but it's interesting anyway. Okay, Treebeard. If Treebeard comes in at all, so this is that, that's that bonus set of notes that Tolkien included on the back of that one sheet. If Treebeard comes in at all, let him be kindly and rather good, about fifty feet high, with barky skin, hair and beard rather like twigs, clothed in dark green like a male, like a male of short shining leaves. He has a castle in the Black Mountains, and many thanes and followers. They look like young trees when they stand. Make Frodo be terrified of Gollum after a meeting in which Gollum pretended to make friends, but tried to strangle Frodo in his sleep and steal the ring. Treebeard finds him lost and carries him up into the Black Mountains. It is only here that Frodo finds he is friendly. Treebeard brings him on the way to Ond. His scouts report that Ond is besieged and that Trotter and four, written above three, others have been captured. Smell Odo, right? 
the threatened reappearance. I, I'm telling you, right? The four others. I mean, it's got to be Trotter and four others. So five other hobbits. That's Odo. If you don't have Odo, you can't get that number. So the 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 writing of three above. This is Odo being cut again. I'm convinced of it. <laughs> Even though he's not named, I'm convinced. He just got put back in and cut again. Uh, anyway, okay, all right. Um, uh, okay, where is Sam? Sam is found in the forest. He had refused to go on without Frodo and had remained looking for him. The tree giants assail the besiegers and rescue Trotter, etc., and, rage, and raise siege. If this plot is used, it will be better to have no Boromir in party. Substitute Gimli, son of Glowen, who was killed in Moria. Oh, right, yeah, okay, who was killed in Moria. But Frodo can bear messages from Boromir to his father, the King of Ant. Every time I read that, it sounds like Glowen was killed in Moria, but no, it's, it's the was, it's the past tense. So Gimli will have been killed, in, so Gimli's going to die. Uh, Gimli... So first we have the son of, you know, Burin, son of Balin. Uh, Gimli replaces him, but initially Gimli is a bit of a red shirt, right? He's going he's gonna to die in Moria, doubtless a super heroic death, right? Um, but, um, but anyway, yeah, so, okay. Several things that I would want to point out about this passage before I get to Treebeard. One. Notice how many individual elements there are here. I mean, if you think about every single detail of this, on the one hand, almost none of any of this is going to stay, right? Um, The final story is going to be almost completely different from this outline. And yet, every single little element, in a sense, is going to be retained, right? Um, Transformed, shifted around character switched, totally context shifted, but still there, right? I mean, think about each of the individual elements. Um, Frodo ends up alone, ends up running off alone because he's terrified when somebody whom he thought was a friend tries to kill him and take the ring, right? That's going to stay, right? Gollum pretends to be a friend, but betrays Frodo. That's going to stay, right? Uh, Treebeard carries people on part of the, you know, finds people and they think he's scary, but he turns out to be a friend and he takes them and he helps them on their journey, right? Uh, Treebeard and his many thanes uh, lift a siege, Right or you know help uh, to fight the 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 army to you know to help to lift the siege in in any case, um, Sam separated from the others because he refused to go on without Frodo and remained looking for them. Right, uh, I mean it's like everything, every detail is there, but totally changed around. So again, he never he almost never leaves anything behind. There's so few even things that get utterly transformed. There's so few ideas that he has that he just completely pitches. Um it's a fairly short um it's a fairly short list of things. Uh the witch house maybe. Remember the witch house back in his initial ideas of what the heck is he going to do in the hobbit sequel? Um yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. Stephen, Stephen, wonderful point. Steve, I didn't even mention that. Somebody dies in Moria, right? There's another one that's going to, that's going to, it's going to stay, right? Um, yeah, Stephen says, of course, Gimli dies. It's not like you'd kill off an important character like Gandalf. Yeah, exactly. Um, okay. So I get, absolutely. Yeah, Stephen, I didn't even mention that one, but absolutely. We see all that stuff. Um, okay. Now, Treebeard. Um, Is he Treebeard yet? Nah. No. No, he's still... Obviously not. He's still Treebeard the Giant, right? Clearly Giant Treebeard. Uh, look at all the evidence for that. First, he's too tall. He's 50 feet high. He's not He's not, He's not. not connected with a tree, right? Remember how his head was up above the trees, right? He's, he's, still, he's still a giant, not a tree. Um, secondly... He's got skin, barky skin. I know you're going to talk about whether this, but remember there's doubt as to whether this was its hide or, 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 or a garment, right? Um, but notice how in the published Two Towers, he uses the term hide, right, to describe this. Um, he's 50 feet high with barky skin. He's a giant with skin that is like bark, but it isn't. His hair and beard are like twigs, but they're not twigs, right? They're like twigs because he's so big, right? And he's getting, but there's no question he's getting more tree-ish, right? Definitely more like trees. Uh, and this, so the connection between giant tree beard and trees is getting closer, right? All of these, so he had the kind of root-like toes before, the sort of branching root-like toes, uh, which were kind of interesting and somewhat nasty. Now his skin is barky and his hair and beard are twiggy, um, but he's still clothed in dark, in dark green like a male of short, shining leaves. So he's still wearing leaves. He's not growing leaves, right? He's wearing, he's wearing male that is like leaves. So he's still clearly a giant who is has a tree motif going on, right? Both in his clothing and in his person, but he's still not a tree. Even his thanes, right? look like young trees. So we can see him sort of moving towards this idea, right? Treebeard is getting drawn towards in the tree direction, but he's still a giant. He lives in a castle in the mountains, like you do if you're a giant, right? Of course he lives in a castle in the, in the mountains. Where else would a self-respecting giant live, right? Um, so he's still clearly a giant, but but his affinity with trees is growing, the major shift, obviously, is that we're not going to have him be a threat anymore. Let him be kindly and rather good. Let him be suspected of being wicked, um, but turn out, in fact, to be kindly and an ally. So that's obviously the major shift. Um, and, Stephen, I don't know in what sense the Thanes and followers look like young trees when they stand. Um, maybe, I mean, if they look like and are dressed like... Um, uh, are dressed like giant tree beard, right? With the like the twiggy hair and the the leafy clothing and stuff. One one thing, Stephen, one possibility that occurs to me. Remember how when he's doing outlines like this, these these specific uh, lines of dialogue or specific um, pieces, chunks of visual description will kind of float in, right? They'll kind of appear to him as he's outlining the thing. I wonder if this isn't one of those. They look like young trees when they stand. So that, like, we get... Tolkien is just getting... This, like, line is coming to him, right? Where the 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 thanes of uh, 
giant tree beard rise up, you know, when he summons them or, or calls them to action or something, and that he's going to compare them. Is He's going to talk about how much it looks like, you know, a forest of, of young trees sort of standing and swaying together or something because of the twigginess and the leaf clothing and stuff like that. So whether it's going to be like a simile that he's going to use at that point, um, and he's going to make a, visu- uh, a, 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 a comparison, presumably a metaphorical comparison, uh, to a forest. That's my guess. But Carson, exactly. Uh, Carson is, of course, noticing the way in which uh, he's kind of painting himself into a corner here, right? This innovation of making Treebeard kindly and rather good, of course, creates a problem with what happened to Gandalf and why didn't he come back, right? You know, so far the answer was he was held captive by giant Treebeard, which of course makes good sense of why Gandalf is like, beware of the giant Treebeard in the Council of Elrond, because he would be very sensitive on that point, right? Um, but uh, but yeah, no, yeah, Carson, there's no obvious explanation to that, you know, no, no obvious answer to that question um, yet. Which leads me, uh, therefore, to uh, an interesting question. Uh, oh, good, good. Yeah, Laura points out that he's, he sounds kind of like the green man of Celtic mythology. Yeah, sure. More like that than he is like an animated tree, no doubt. Um, but um, let's, uh, let's pause here for a second, because we're, we've sort of come to the end of the, uh, uh, the Council of Elrond material, and I think I'm going to have to stop at the end of the Council of Elrond material, um, but that's okay. We, we still did a valiant job here. 15 slides is not that shabby. Uh, anyway, okay. But my, my final question. What are, what's missing? What's missing from the Council of Elrond? Um, as Christopher points out, it is very striking that what is there in the first draft of the Council of Elrond is very similar to what's going to remain in the Council of Elrond, right? There are very few ways in which the stuff that's there needs to be totally changed. But what's missing? What are the things that are missing? Let's make a list. Good. Tomas, I agree. The telling of old stories. Um, We don't get Elrond talking and talking and talking for hours, right? Telling the entire story. Gandalf tells the history of the ring, but that's different, right? Um, So, yeah, we don't get the whole story of the Last Alliance and all that stuff. Good. What else? Saruman, Tony, clearly, right? Yeah, we don't get Saruman. Um, and uh, uh, the... the um, So, because, yeah, we did the whole Treebeard thing. We're transitioning there, right? So, okay, so we don't... So no revelation of the treason of Isengard. Uh, sinking suspicion that's going to come in the next volume, right? Um, and uh, And no ancient history, no last alliance. Gollum, good, the story of Gollum's escape. We get instead the story of Gollum's captivity, right? Um, uh, you know, of, 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 of his pursuit. That is, how did, Go- how did Gandalf get that whole story, right? Go- he says that he's seen Gollum, right? He's spoken to Gollum. He says that in ancient history. How did he catch Gollum? How did they get him? Well, we get the story, right? With Trotter and, and him and, and catching it, right? Okay. Um, uh, yeah, Kimber, Boromir's message, right? The dream. Seek for the blade that was broken in Imladris it dwells, right? Uh, that's not there yet. 
interesting, again, as we talked about, and I, I love the fact that Boromir has something important to say but never says it in this first uh, draft. That's kind of hilarious. Um, interesting. And, of course, he couldn't possibly have been going to say what he eventually says because there is no broken blade, there is no heir of Elendil, right? So, uh, you know, it's just Trotter and his wooden shoes. So uh, so we, he can't have been planning to go there, but he was going to go somewhere, and we don't. I, it makes me seriously wonder where it was going to be. Um, Kate, yeah, not much from Mirkwood in general. I agree. I agree. Um, and as, as Kate points out, really ignoring the development of the newcomers. We don't get that much from the dwarves. We don't get that much from the elves of Mirkwood. We don't get much of anything from, uh, uh, from, uh, from Gondor. All that is gold is not gooder. Yeah, we don't get that poem, because, of course, that's Aragorn's poem, right? And Aragorn isn't there yet. And, of course, you think of the context in which uh, Bilbo quotes that poem during the Council of Elrond. It is to def- it is to to shut Boromir up, right? When Boromir is being skeptical about Aragorn, right? He, he says it in defense of his friend. Um, uh, good, Tony. Gandalf giving his proofs of the ring. That uh, Gandalf saying the ring verse in the Black Speech, right? We don't get that either. In other words, nobody. Because and and you're right, Tony. That's a really interesting element, right? No one seems to have the slightest. You know, Gandalf says, "Hey, okay, so this is the ruling ring, people, and here's how the ruling ring works." And they're like, "Good to know. Let's decide what to do, right?" So, uh, no questioning or resistance or anything like that um, uh, is even asked for by Gandalf, which is interesting. Yeah. Good. So, of course, as you can see, lots of road yet to travel here in the Council of Elrond. Um, uh, Rohan, yeah, we're gonna, we're gonna get to, to, well, we're gonna get to Rohan. We'll get to Rohan eventually, and the ring goes south. As we start to move south, we'll get glimpses from a distance, sort of, of Rohan. Um, but, uh, I'm gonna stop here for tonight. Um, Okay, how many slides do I have? I don't even remember. Uh, let's see, I don't know. How many slides do I have? Uh, 22. I have 22 slides. So I made it two-thirds of the way. That's not so bad. Um, and I don't have as much to talk about about the the journey in the snow. I mean, it's really cool and interesting to see the whole construction of that story and Boromir's central role and uh, the way in which it's really like Boromir, Gandalf, and a bunch of hobbits, right? So they don't... Um, uh, the the extremity of their reliance upon um, upon Boromir in that moment is, is, is makes it really interesting. Um, but um, anyway, okay. Uh, so let's... Next week, we're finishing the book next week, whatever it takes. I'm gonna I'm gonna lecture until two o'clock in the morning if I have to, but I don't think it will be necessary. Uh, so we're gonna do we'll, we'll we'll do the Ringo South. So really, we're pretty much doing the last two chapters uh, next time, um, but that's that's fine. It's totally fine. We're all good. Um, so I look forward to talking about uh, Karathras and Moria, which is not called Karathras yet. Uh, next time. Thanks very much, everybody, and I will see you guys next week for the end of the Return of the Shadow class. Uh, Thanks, everybody. Good night. See you next week.